my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. This evening uh, brings to a conclusion our study of the first book of Samuel and will bring to a conclusion our studies on the life of David for the time being. Uh, whether we will be able, uh, according to circumstances and the will of the Father, to take it up again in the second Samuel a little later on remains to be seen, I dare say. But nevertheless, for the time being, we're going to conclude our thoughts on this aspect of the life of David. Of course, we'll all appreciate that when we turn to the second of Samuel and begin there with the opening words and the opening chapter, it really opens another new era in David's life. Equally as interesting, equally as powerful in the lessons that it conveys. And so uh, that part of the study is uh, perhaps sometime in the future. Nevertheless, before we go any further tonight, I would like very much on behalf of you all to express our appreciation to Brother Graham Hill for the amount of work that he has put in in preparing the notes for each of the classes. It was something that I did not envisage when we began this class. Uh, I knew jolly well that I wouldn't be able to have the time to do anything like that myself. And uh, I want you to know that Brother Graham offered to do that and thought that it would be helpful to those who attend the class. And so I was very delighted to take up his offer to prepare notes. He goes to a great deal of trouble to prepare these notes. And uh, I have heard that he even uh, goes through the suffering of going through the tapes again afterwards to make sure that uh, he gets everything down right. So he goes to a lot of trouble for our benefit. And uh, so therefore we would like to thank him very much for that. Uh, in our last class we got as far as verse 4 of uh, chapter 31, the final chapter, and we came to the death of Saul. And we read in verse 4 that then said Saul unto his armour bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armour bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. In other words, he knew it was wrong. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell apart. So there we have the death of Saul. Now there are some things that are very interesting to consider at this particular point. Remember that earlier, back in the early chapters of uh, Samuel, chapter 4, chapter 5, the Philistines had set the ark of Yahweh up in an act of defiance against him before their own god, Dagon. And as a result of that, their god, their idol, had fallen down and broken. Now we come to these final words in the first of Samuel and we find this, that Israel had demanded a king. They didn't ask for one. They demanded a king. Why? That we also may be like all the nations. Chapter 8 and verse 20. And their king, became their idol because he represented to them what they wanted to see and what they wanted to bow down before. So their king became their idol. And now we find in this fourth verse that their idol, like that of the Philistines, lay broken. There's a very strong irony in that, isn't there? And of course, as far as the people were concerned and as far as Saul was concerned, instead of permitting Yahweh to continue to reign over them, 
and being content to do what Moses had done, to remain under the guidance of him who is invisible, as Hebrews 11 and verse 27 tells us. They didn't want any longer a God or a king who was invisible. They wanted someone they could see. Now, let them have a look at the one they wanted to see. Dead in ignominious defeat upon the field of battle. And the nation left in a state of ruin and chaos. You see, they had set their heart upon an earthly, visible object. And they received the result of that. We mentioned earlier chapter 4 of 1st of Samuel. Do you remember there that Israel had made an idol of the ark when it had been brought into the field of battle? You might wonder why we use that expression. Well, the reason for that is that in that fourth chapter they were fighting the Philistines and they were sorely beaten because Yahweh was not with them. So they got a brilliant idea. And they said, look, what we must do is send for the ark, bring the ark, because the ark represents Yahweh's presence in the midst of the nation. Bring the ark right to the field of battle and then he'll have to give us the victory. Very smart thinking. If you think according to the thinking of the flesh. But the result of it was one of the greatest military defeats in the whole history of the nation of Israel and the ark itself being taken away from Israel and delivered into the hands of the hated Philistines. They lost the ark and now they have lost their king. And in this respect perhaps the most sobering lesson of all from the, from the life of Saul is to be able to see now in the hour of his death as we consider these very, very important lessons and the parallels and the ironies of what happens is to consider that Saul was a representation of and a reflection of the hearts of his own people. He represented what they were because he was what they wanted and what they had asked for. The people were Gentile oriented in the fact that they wanted a king like all the nations. They had an inkling after Gentile things. They were materialistically minded. They had proven to be extremely self-willed. All the characteristics that we have seen have dominated the life of Saul. So they reap accordingly. And you know, there's a very interesting point made much later on in history concerning this first king of Israel. When Yahweh, in the days of the prophet Hosea, looking back, in retrospect, upon this incident of which we read this evening, Yahweh said, I gave thee a king in mine anger and took him away in my wrath. And you'll find that in Hosea 13 and verse 11. You see, when the people demanded a king and Yahweh gave them Saul, it was not his will because he was their king and he was the one they were repudiating. No wonder he said 
I gave thee a king in mine anger. It didn't please him to do that. And took him away in my wrath. Because the very thing that Yahweh had said would happen, did happen. And the king proved to be an absolute utter failure. And took the nation, Yahweh's people, to the brink of utter ruin and chaos. So you see, we give some consideration to the words of the prophet Isaiah here. In chapter 2 and verse 22, we know the words only too well. Cease ye from man, whose breath is in his nostrils. And the word man there is Adam. And I don't believe that it is referring to wise brethren and sisters in the ecclesia. I believe that it's referring to putting our trust in flesh. Hence the use of the word Adam. Cease ye from Adam, whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? Or to consider it from the Jerusalem Bible rendering, it reads this way, Trust no more in man. He has but a breath in his nostrils. How much is he worth? How much is he worth? A man lacking in a knowledge and a wisdom and an understanding of the things of Yahweh, who when asked for advice or counsel will speak according to the mind of the flesh and take people down the road to ruin and destruction. No wonder the prophet Isaiah says, cease ye from Adam. And really it's a bit like Paul, isn't it? In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3, when he warns us, have no confidence in the flesh. Have no confidence in the flesh. First of all our own, and then that of others. Have the ear always attuned to the wise counsel of Yahweh? and the teaching of his son and Moses and the prophets and the faithful apostles and the writers of the New Testament scriptures under divine inspiration never mind about confidence in the flesh that is why Saul fell on the field of battle that's the sad lesson of Saul's life and death because both Saul and Israel had failed in that respect and so in verse 5 as we bear those things in mind, we find that his armour bearer, when he sees what Saul has done, he sees that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. And you know there's an irony in that as well. The irony is this, that to the very end, Saul set a bad example. And his armour bearer, who had fought by the side of the king, now followed the example of Saul, which is something that Saul should never have done. It need be, fight to the death, but you do not take your own life. You see, right to the end, in his very final act, we see what sort of an example Saul was. The lesson there, of course, is how careful we all have to be as to what sort of examples we are to one another that we might help to strengthen and encourage and comfort one another in the things of the word rather than by our own example lead others in a way that will take them to destruction. 
The words very simply there in verse 6 are, So Saul died. So Saul died. A simple expression. It's not that he died that we consider this evening. It is how he died and why he died. You know, in Proverbs 29 and verse 1, there is a verse that has an incredible application to Saul. And we read it this evening from the Jerusalem Bible translation. But I render it this way. The man often rebuked but stubborn still, suddenly, irretrievably, his fall will come. Aren't they incredible words? And didn't they apply to Saul? The man often rebuked, but stubborn still, suddenly, irretrievably, his fall will come. And it doesn't speak there of a fall that is through the weakness of the flesh. Because we all do that. We fall continually. But if we still have our mind on the truth and we still love Yahweh and we are still intent upon the vision of the kingdom, we get up, dust ourselves off, metaphorically speaking, and we go on. But this proverb is speaking of something different. It's speaking of someone who has been often rebuked but remains stubborn and resistant to the influence of the word. You know, there's a remarkable verse in Psalm 31 that reminds us that Yahweh requires more than the fact that we know the truth. That we are in the truth. You'll notice in Psalm 31 and verse 23, it says, O love Yahweh, all ye his saints, for Yahweh preserveth the faithful. Now, who are the faithful? Well, in answering that question, we have to understand that being in the truth is not enough. Merely studying the Bible is not enough. Being able to debate with other people on the principles of the truth is not enough. The faithful here are defined in verse 23 as those who love Yahweh. We have to love Yahweh. We have to love the truth. We have to have an earnest desire to please Him. And so the psalm finishes on, in verse 24 upon the note, Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in Yahweh. And those who hope in him are those who love him. And so we find that the exercise of self-will, as seen so often in the life of Saul, in opposition to the divine will, has inevitably got to bring this kind of tragic result. And we need to remember what the word says about the death of Saul, as we've seen previously in the first of Chronicles chapter 10 and verse 13 and 14. So Saul died for his transgression, 
which he committed against Yahweh, even against the word of Yahweh, which he kept not. You see, those words are telling us that if we don't consider reverentially the word, if we don't have a love for the word, and a desire to walk in the way of the, 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 the word, then that is against Yahweh. It's not just simply neglect of the Bible or the teaching of the word. It is against Yahweh. That's exactly what it says here. Which he committed against Yahweh, even against the word of Yahweh, which he kept not. And then remember, it ends with the words in that verse 14 of 1 Chronicles 10, Therefore, he slew him. Then we read the night that Saul fell on his sword. Saul committed suicide. But the scripture tells us that Yahweh slew him. In other words, Yahweh brought about the circumstances that resulted in Saul meeting this horrific end. And remember, Paul put it this way in Galatians 6 and verse 7. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And you know, as we read these words here, so Saul died. We need to remember the legacy that he left behind. We need to consider the fact that the, a great measure of the success or otherwise of the reign of a king may be determined by the condition of his kingdom at the end of his reign. What was the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel? What was the moral condition of the nation of Israel? Was there any respect for proper godly standards of law and order and behaviour? Did the people enjoy a measure of peace and well-being and security, safe under the guiding hand of providence? We know the answers to all those questions, and they're all in the negative, aren't they? But make a note of Micah chapter 4 and verse 4 for the contrast. Of what it will be like in the kingdom age when there is a far greater than Saul, a far greater than David, when the Lord Jesus Christ shall be king over all the earth, when it says that a man shall sit under his own vine and his own fig tree and none shall make him afraid. Why will none make him afraid? Because he will be in a sound spiritual condition. He will have learnt the moral principles of divine worship and a way of daily life. He will not be dominated by materialistic conditions and circumstances. He will have a respect for proper standards of law and order and decency. And therefore, upon the basis of those things, he will be able to say, and none shall make them afraid, because he will have a security that we find totally lacking in the days when Saul died. Was there any internal peace within the nation? Was there freedom from oppression or invasion by foreigners and death for men, women and children? We know that in all those respects Saul's reign was an absolute failure and the legacy that he left to his nation was one of absolute chaos. And all because we said just a few moments ago from the first of Chronicles chapter 10 that he died for his transgression which he committed against Yahweh even against the word of Yahweh 
which he kept not. And therefore the people suffer because of that. So at the end of Saul's life, his work was made manifest. And it was tried and it was found wanting. And remember in that respect, perhaps we could make a note of Paul's words in the first of Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13 when he reminds us, so far as all of us are concerned, that every man's work will be tried by fire. And the thing is, when that day comes, will we have been found or will we be found by the Lord to have positively built upon the things of tr- the truth in our own lives, within our ecclesia, within our families, those with whom we meet and mix with in our ecclesial life, in our ecclesial existence, will we have been found or have been a positive influence for good despite all our weaknesses, all our sins, iniquities and transgressions, all our failings, for which we pray the Father through the Son will forgive us. Despite all that, will we be found to have positively built things as David was to emerge shortly after this, in the second book of Samuel, to emerge from almost total obscurity, unite all the twelve tribes, and take Israel at the greatest hour of their glory. There's the contrast between the two. And so we find in these things that we really need to think about, brethren and sisters, that people had demanded a king. And now here he was. And surely the lesson there is that it is always better to listen to the wise counsel of Yahweh rather than to say, well, I know what I want and I've got spiritual motives I know what I want to do, I know where I want to get, I know I want to do this and that and the other, and I'm quite convinced, I know where I am, and I know where I'm going, which basically was Saul's failing, was it not? It's much better to reflect, for example, on that eighth chapter of the first of Samuel, and how Samuel implored them, don't do it. And they said, ask, ask Yahweh. And remember Yahweh said to Samuel, Don't be too deeply concerned, Samuel, because they have not rejected thee. They have rejected me that I should not reign over. Much better to listen to the wise counsel of Yahweh. And so in verse 7 we learn something interesting. When the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley and they that were on the other side, Jordan, saw that the men of Israel fled and that Saul and his sons were dead They forsook the cities and fled. And the Philistines came and dwelt in them. In effect, the Philistines took possession of all of that northern part of the land. That was one of the things that David was going to have to come to grips with in due time. You see, the word of the massive defeat of Israel, and not only that, but the death of Saul and his sons had spread like wildfire. And now it was not simply a question of Israel's defeat and the death of their king. There were enormous political implications and consequences now. You know, there's a very interesting verse, keeping a hand in there, if we go over to the first of Chronicles, chapter 10, which we've mentioned a couple of times tonight, but an earlier verse, in the first of Chronicles, chapter 10, and in verse 7, this is what we learn of this particular time. 
And when all the men of Israel that were in the valley saw that they fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, then they forsook their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. You see, Chronicles is endorsing what we're reading in, in Samuel. And it seems as though with this victory that the Philistines had at this particular time, that more and more of Saul's kingdom had become demoralised, had become vulnerable, and territorially had fallen into the hands of and under the control of the Philistines. There are only tribes that we know of, territorially, who escaped at that time, uh, are recorded in a reference in the second Samuel chapter 2 and verses 8 to 11. And they were Ephraim, Benjamin and Judah and also the tribe of Gilead. So Ephraim, Benjamin, Judah and on the other side of Jordan, Gilead. The second of Samuel chapter 2 verse 8 to 11 tells us that, that that was the situation. And so verse 8 then goes on to tell us that it came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Gilboa. We wonder why it says on the morrow. Because really to find the body of Saul would be one of the greatest spoils of the battle in the way warfare was fought in those days. Why does it say on the morrow? There appears to be only one reasonable answer to that. And that is that the day of the battle, Israel was so thoroughly defeated that the Philistines had spent the whole of that day doing nothing else but pursuing and slaughtering the fleeing Israelites. And so it wasn't until the next day that they got around to coming back to the field of battle. And here they found one of the great spoils of war. They found Saul and his three sons. And of course what they would do now would be to use these bodies to discredit Yahweh and to hold them up before their own gods as prizes of battle. And you see here was another effect of Saul's faithlessness in that he brought dishonour upon the name of Yahweh even in his death. So there's incredible ironies here all the way through. Saul's opportunities given time after time after time and all of them disregarded. And it all comes to this in the end. And in effect, you know, it's almost like a, a bit of a prefigure of those who will be rejected at the judgment seat of Christ. It's a very sobering thought to think of that. Because all of Saul's past follies have now all come home with this inevitable result and outcome. One thing after another. All these things to be learned in these last few verses of the first of Samuel. And in verse 9 it says that they cut off his head. Just think for a moment. That was the very same fate that had come upon their champion, Goliath. But there's a difference. Because as Goliath had been overcome through faith, 
So Saul lost his last battle through lack of faith. And when we think of this here, where it says that they cut off his head, let us remember that so far as we are concerned, we cannot do without a head. Which might sound stupid. But I'm sure you all know what I mean. Ephesians tells us that Christ is the head of the body. We cannot do without our head individually, as families, as an ecclesia. We cannot allow the thinking power, the brain, the spiritual brain of Christ that is to direct all the actions and the activities and the thinkings and the responses of the body. We cannot do without our head. Lose our head. Allow ourselves to be separated from our head by virtually saying we don't want a head anymore. Which is really what happened to Saul. He forfeited his head. We must always remember that Christ is the head of the body. We cannot afford to become headless. And therefore, it doesn't matter what the trials or the difficulties or the problems of life are, listen to the head. Don't be overcome by the emotion of the moment. Don't allow fleshly considerations or fleshly relationships or other things to interfere with our relationship with our head. Because if we do, our body will not be complete. Always listen to the head. But if your head is cut off, or you're parted from your head, then all that's left is the flesh, and we have nothing to think with. And so in verse 10, it goes on to tell us that they put his armour in the house of Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. You'll notice that they do not take his armour as an offering and set it up once again in the house of Dagon. They had tried that once before. So that and now they try a different god, or in this case, a goddess, Ashtaroth. One of the vile goddesses worshipped by the Philistines and others of the Canaanites. A goddess worshipped with a most obscene, unspeakable, despicable rites. What greater humiliation could there be for a king of Israel? It would be hard to think of one, wouldn't it? And then, of course, they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And the bodies of his sons also in verse 12. This was a city in the valley of Jezreel. According to Joshua 17 and verse 16, and rather than taking his body back to the land of the Philistines, they must have felt so confident of not only gaining this territory right in the heart of Israel, but of holding it, that they would keep it. And so they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. You see what it's telling us? Saul was crucified. The only thing is, 
It was too late. The flesh of Saul were the affections and lusts thereof. In the case of Saul, it was not a voluntary crucifixion. It was a crucifixion, ironically, once again. The ironies just pour out of these verses. It was a crucifixion of his body about which he knew absolutely nothing. He finished up crucified, but too late. Couldn't do anything for him. Well, what we find with this disastrous situation, that in the closing verses, in verse 11, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard of that which the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan and came to Jabesh and burnt them there. Now, remember that Saul had done something worthwhile for the people of Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead was about five miles east of the Jordan and about 20 miles southeast of Gilboa. And Saul had already delivered this city from an attack by the Ammonites. It's recorded in 1st of Samuel chapter 11 and verses 1 to 11. And it's one of the few things that is recorded in Saul's life that he did that was worthwhile. Now you see, these men of Jabesh Gilead, they owed Saul something. In their own minds they felt they owed him something. You see, he had an element of loyalty from these men who were very brave and very courageous to go right into that very area where the Philistines were dominant. They went there, it says, they arose and went all night. Very courageous of them to do that. But look, think of this. If only Saul, as king of the nation, had displayed the same characteristics toward all the nations, as he had displayed toward the people of Jabesh Gilead, he would have had as much loyalty from all the rest of the nation. They all would have been like the men of Jabesh Gilead. All the nation would have laid fervently behind Saul and there would have been no defeat at this hour of crisis. They would have gone forth courageously as an army of Yahweh's people and they would have fought the Philistines and defeated them. But what a tragedy. Only the men of Jabesh Gilead. No one else. Of course, ultimately we find that David has the last word in the matter. But here in verse 12, all the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead went there, got the bodies, and they burnt them. We might ask, why on earth would they have burnt the bodies when actions of that kind were more associated with Gentiles? Certainly not with Israelites. They did not normally do that. So once again, when you think about it, it would appear that there don't be only really one answer to that. And that would be to prevent the Philistines from recovering the bodies and subjecting them to even greater indignities than they have done to this point. When the bodies were burnt, there was nothing for the Philistines to take. But as far as the final resting place of Saul's remains and those of his sons, Typically, it was attended to by David. In the uh, second of Samuel, chapter twenty-one, 
after David has become king over all the United Nations and he reigns as monarch over all. We find in the second of Samuel 21 and verses 12 to 14, David never forgot Saul, never forgot Jonathan, never forgot the sons of Saul either for that matter. And he recovered those bones, whatever was left, he recovered them and he buried them where they belonged. In the sepulchre of Kish, in the tribe of Benjamin. But for the time being, this is what they did. And then we read that they fasted seven days. It was a period of mourning. And these are the final words in the chapter. They fasted seven days. A period of mourning, brethren and sisters. Let's think about that. They fasted seven days. Contrast that with this fact that had Saul been a man of faith, had he been a man of integrity such as David was, had he led that nation in the spirit of the truth and under the guiding hand of Yahweh, then instead of seven days of mourning, there would have been seven days or more of joyous feasting and celebration and a great victory over the Philistines. I've always regarded this as one of the saddest and most tragic chapters in Scripture. And going over it again in these recent days, I had no reason to change that view. You see, they're dreadful words. For the first book of Samuel I have to end upon, they fasted seven days, seven days of mourning, when with the right leadership, the right spirit in that nation, the right zeal, the keenness, the dedication, the enthusiasm for the things of the truth, the submission to the will of Yahweh and his guiding hand, it would have been a victory celebration and not one of mourning. But you see, although the book ends on that note, what they were not to know was that though the apparent fate of the entire nation now hung in the balance, and it could well have been that under those circumstances that we've been looking at in recent times, it could have been the annihilation of the entire nation. The people were not to know that at this hour of deep, deep darkness, the nation stood on the threshold of the hour of their greatest glory nationally. Because David was, as we said earlier, to emerge from comparative obscurity and lead that nation to greatness under the guiding hand of Yahweh. And you know there's a tremendous lesson in that for every one of us. Sometimes we get so down, we get so depressed, things go wrong, one after the other, day after day, almost hourly sometimes, something goes wrong with me, you go, oh dear, that's that's very, very unfortunate. That's happened. An hour later we hear of something else and, oh dear, what are we going to do now? And something worse has happened. But you see, we don't realise always, do we, that in the midst of our trials, we never know what is ahead of us. There may be more trial. There may be greater trial. There may be more suffering. But on the other hand, we can always continue in faith 
knowing that if we serve Yahweh in spirit and in truth, he will ultimately bring our trials to an end and bring us to the light after the darkness of all the trials and problems and difficulties of life. Eventually, the light. And so therefore we find that 40 years of misrule had now come to an end. And perhaps Saul, after his own epitaph, in chapter 26 and verse 21, which we have looked at, when he said to David, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Or as another version renders it, I have acted senselessly and have gone far astray. And that summarises the life of Saul. Now, of course, we won't be seeing any more of Saul now. This is the end of his life. But later on in Scripture, there is to come upon the scene another Saul. And you know, I have noted down nine main similarities between these two Saul's. And you won't be able to note them down now, but no doubt our brother Graham will put them into the notes for you. You'll be able to have a look at them in a bit more detail. But I've discovered nine points of absolute similarity. You might say, well, how on earth could you do that? They're two totally different men. They were not. Number one, they were both of the tribe of Benjamin. Two, both of them had been born into privileged families. Three, both of them were circumcised on the eighth day. Four, both of them had been born under the law of Moses. Five, both had come from obscurity to hold prominence. The first saw as king over Israel and the other as a chosen vessel of the Lord. Six, both of them died violent deaths. Seven, by nature they had very similar characteristics. They could be zealous, resolute, determined, ardent, dedicated to a cause, and there are other things as well. Eight, both were brought face to face with the truth in a very incredible way. In the case of the first Saul, it was when he met a company of the prophets. In the first of Samuel chapter 10 and verse 10. And the second Saul on the road to Damascus when he came face to face with the blinding light of the Lord's presence. The ninth point of similarity is this. The doubts on the part of the brethren were expressed in regard to both of them. Concerning the first Saul, the people asked, Is this Saul also among the prophets? In chapter 10 and verse 12, as though they could hardly believe it. And of the second Saul, in Acts chapter 9 and verse 26, the brethren said, they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. Now those are some of the main similarities. But the fact is that these similarities in character or personality, whatever we like to call it, 
these similar aspects of their characters were channeled in opposite directions. Because you see, Saul of Gibeah was a failure in the truth. Whereas Saul of Tarsus was a success and acceptable to God. The first Saul did not allow the word of God to discipline and shape his character. Whereas the second Saul did. We consider Saul a king. That he had the same opportunities in the truth as Saul of Tarsus. But whereas Saul of Gideon wasted his opportunities, Saul of Tarsus permitted his character to be guided and formed and developed by the power of the word so that he became a profitable and acceptable servant of Yahweh. And you know, all of that takes us to what Samuel said to Saul in chapter 15 and verse 22. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Saul of Tarsus understood that. Saul of Gibeah could never come to grips with that and what it meant. But it meant to love Yahweh, to love his word, to submit to his will, to be guided by his overriding hand and presence and to submit to the power of his authority. So we find there are seven contrasts between the two souls. And here they are. One, the conversion to the truth by the first soul was very superficial and not based upon real conviction at all. But the second soul became totally converted and his conversion endured unerringly right to the hour of his death. The first soul was dominated by self-will. The second soul surrendered up his own will that he might perform and manifest only the will of Christ, his master. Thirdly, after showing some degree of early promise, the first soul began to descend spiritually. Remember how we saw right in the early stages how the soul was given every opportunity and there was much enthusiasm when he was appointed to this high position in the land. And he seemed to be somewhat appreciative of it. But from then on it was a downhill walk all the way, apart from one or two generous things such as Jabesh Gilead that we've just seen. So the way might have begun with some promise. From then on he pursued his life and descended in the truth. Whereas the second soul, once converted, gave his life to Christ and developed more and more and more. So that instead of dying in ignominious defeat, defeat such as Saul of Gideon, he is able to say, I had kept the faith and there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the righteous judge will give to me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all those also who love his appearing. See the contrast there? Here's a fourth one. Saul of Gibeah continued to persecute the righteous in his relentless pursuit after David. But on the other hand, Saul of Tarsus, though earlier that same fate of mine, turned completely when 
his conversion to upholding the righteous and spend himself and gave himself for those who love the truth and love righteousness. There's a contrast. Here's a fifth one. The first soul persecuted the righteous but the second soul became persecuted for its cause of righteousness. It's really quite incredible, isn't it, when you start putting all these things together. The sixth point is that the life of the first soul ended in despair, whereas the second soul, his life ended in hope of eternal life. We've just seen in those words from Timothy. The final point is that the life of the first soul is set before us as a warning. The life of the second soul is set before us as an example to anyone. And having considered the lives of the two men, all we have to ask ourselves is which of the two souls would we be wise to follow? It's not a difficult question to answer, is it? Perhaps before concluding, we should have a comment regarding the death of Jonathan. Because it's amazing the number of times that I've had brethren and sisters make the point to me going through this chapter that it seems perhaps rather unfair that since Jonathan was so faithful, not only to David, but more importantly, faithful to Yahweh and faithful to the truth, It might have been quite seemly and timely that Saul should die, but why Jonathan? Why Jonathan? Why should he have died at this time? Probably in the prime of life. Well, the answer is that Yahweh is never unjust. That is the overriding answer to that question. We could, perhaps without thinking what we are saying, accuse Yahweh of some injustice in regard to Jonathan. Yahweh is never unjust. We know that sometimes the innocent suffer with, or perhaps through, the guilty. But does that really matter? In view of the fact that those who are the innocent ones, if they are walking in the way of the truth, will receive a rich and a full reward after the resurrection. What does it matter? If somebody is walking in the way of the truth, they know the meaning of faith, and they are walking in the faith, what does it really matter? When they die, whether young, middle-aged, or perhaps lived to a ripe old age, what does it really matter? Because, you see, if we start balancing those things, then we start questioning the judgments and the wisdom of Yahweh. You see, Yahweh knew somehow or another that Jonathan's life would be best ended here. And remember that when Jonathan died here with his father on Mount Gilboa, he died still remaining totally loyal to Yahweh, totally loyal to David, and without having betrayed his own father. The circumstances of life could not have continued on like that indefinitely. In a sense, Yahweh delivered Jonathan into death to deliver him out of an impossible situation which may well have developed. 
And what is most important of all, I suppose, is what we already said in different words, is that what is important is that Jonathan died in the faith, as we read in Hebrews 11, and therefore he died in hope. So no matter what age a man or a woman is, when their life ends through death, it doesn't matter. As long as they walk in the way of the truth, and they die in hope of the resurrection of the dead and an inheritance in the kingdom. And so in these thoughts, brethren and sisters, we bring them in our studies for the time being on the life of David as we conclude the first book of Samuel. And it ends upon that tragic note of the death of Saul. And all those ironies that we have considered tonight, they all come together somehow or another. They all come to bear. It's like the phrase that we all know so well. Chickens come home to roost. And they're all here, all the ironies of Saul's life, and they're all coming to these closing verses of the chapter. But what we should remember is this, that though Saul had tried desperately to prevent David from coming to the throne, and up until this point in time, he still hasn't come to the throne, and will not for a little while yet. Yet the point is, and that's the most powerful lesson we are to learn, despite the tragedy of this chapter, despite the sadness, despite the compellingly powerful lessons that there are to be learned and applied in our own lives, the overriding point is this, no matter what Saul tried to do, no matter what the Philistines tried to do, Yahweh had a purpose, and flesh will never overturn the purpose of Yahweh. And that's why the second book of Samuel brings us to the fulfilment of Yahweh's promise. When he sent Samuel at the beginning of our studies, back in chapter 16, and he said, take one of Jesse's sons whom I will show you and appoint you and anoint him king over Israel. I'm choosing the next king for this nation, not the people. I'm not giving them what they want. I'm giving them what I believe will be best for them since they've established a system of government ruled over by a monarchy. Flesh cannot overturn the purpose of Yahweh. And you know, in that reverend sisters, as we complete these studies for the time being, let us be encouraged by that. Where are the trials of life, the problems and difficulties. We get involved in all sorts of strife, often through our own foolishness. But nevertheless, where are these trials, where are the pressure that is brought upon us, but over all of that, there is the hope of Israel. There are the things promised by Yahweh. There are the things that we know He will always remain faithful to. And we can go on in life with our faith and our trust and our confidence in Him, knowing that He will surely and inevitably bring to pass all that He has promised. David was of that mind at this very time. So let us strive to imitate the mind of the characteristic and the dedication of David so that in the day of account we might be determined to be a man or a woman after God's own heart.